You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts, from diplomats to humanitarians to students. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. Today, I'm joined with Kelly Soderstrom. So I think it's important that governments remember that we're dealing with people here with their own concerns and their own hopes and dreams. We're delving into the effects Brexit is having on refugees and asylum seekers and what the future looks like for current policies the UK has in place, honing in on children and families. Today, I'm sitting with Kelly Soderstrom. She is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of Melbourne. Her research interests include German and EU asylum policies, European integration, identity and citizenship. She's also a research partner with the Comparative Network on Refugee Externalisation Policies, CONREP, funded by the EU through Jean Monnet Network Grant. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Just to start us off, can you tell me a bit more about CONREP and the importance of it being funded by the EU? Yes, so I'm a research partner with the Comparative Network on Refugee Externalization Policies, and we look specifically at the causes and consequences of refugee externalization in the EU and the Asia-Pacific. And my role is not only as a researcher in this important area, but I also help run the blog and help with social media and help organize the events that we have both here in Europe over the three-year uh, duration of the grant. Oh. So as you mentioned, CONREP is a Jean Monnet grant, and the, the EU is fantastic in giving out these, um, these amazing international grants that allow us to work with universities and researchers all over the world. So at the moment, this CONREP network is a partnership with a bunch of universities here in Australia, as well as universities in Europe, and we have researchers come here. We host events in Europe, so we get the chance to go over and share knowledge over in Europe. We actually just hosted a bunch of events, including a big international workshop where we had researchers from all over the world come and share their research with us regarding refugee externalization policies, which was incredibly interesting. So yeah, no, the EU is fantastic in that sense that they love giving grants to these sorts of projects. Tell me about your role in CONREP. So I'm a research partner. Yeah. which means that I conduct research in in regard to refugee externalization policies, but I also work to help disseminate the research that we're doing. So I help run the network blog. Um, I also help run the social media. Um, we I also am in charge of, or at least helping organize a lot of the events that we do. There's quite a few of us that do this, so quite a few research partners. It's definitely a collaborative effort but everything from the research of writing policy briefs to journal articles, books, appearing on podcasts and in media and other media outlets. So a variety of things. As a research partner, what interests you the most? My expertise and background is much more in EU of refugee and asylum policy. Um, I am very interested in Australian asylum policy as well especially because the EU and Australia seem to have a strange communication with each other about what asylum policy should look like. And um, I'm sure that'll come up later in our conversation about Brexit. So my research tends to focus mostly on the EU 
but I am branching out a little bit more into um, Australia and externalization policies in Australia. I think we need to define a few terms. So how would you define asylum seeker versus refugee versus migrant? No, I think that's a really great idea because these are terms that are confused quite often. First off, migrant is very much a kind of a catch-all term that's used for anyone who's moving across borders or even sometimes internally within countries. Um, Refugees are people seeking asylum who have been granted protection status. Asylum seekers are those that are still looking for that status or still have applied for that status. In order to be either a refugee or an asylum seeker, you have to have crossed an international border. So there are many, many, many people who are still within a country and are seeking protection or have been forcibly displaced. And those are called internally displaced persons or IDPs. Um, They are not legally considered to be asylum seekers or refugees because they have not crossed that international border. So that's, that's kind of an important distinction. How this differs from, say, immigrants is that immigrants are people who have moved to a place permanently, usually through a visa system. Um, They are distinct from refugees and asylum seekers because those are people who have been forcibly displaced. Immigrants have decided to move of their own accord. Um, Immigrants, like I mentioned, it's more of a permanent movement as opposed to, say, migrants, which could include people who are on temporary visas or who are um, students. Um, This also differs from emigrants with EM at the beginning as opposed to IM. Um, emigrants are those who have left a country permanently, while immigrants are those who have come into a country permanently. Those concepts will definitely help us understand what we're about to delve into, Brexit and refugees. So we all know about Brexit and the effect it's having on Europe, the rest of the world and the UK. But what does it actually mean for refugees and asylum seekers alike? That is a good question. Yeah, it's a bit of a loaded one, I think. <laughs> This is the tricky thing, is because we're in a transition period at the moment. So the unfortunate answer is we don't know, because the at least in terms of how the UK and the EU will deal with um, asylum seekers and refugees together is still an unknown that needs to be negotiated. In terms of how this changes the relationship currently, under the withdrawal agreement, pretty much everything is staying the way that that it is. Um, The UK is still functioning under the Dublin regulation. Um, It still has access to Eurodac, um, and it still is is operating under the Common European Asylum System. I'll I'll actually start with the Common European Asylum System because it's kind of the catch-all for for all EU legislation that governs asylum policy in in EU member states. So this is a system of, of various policies that dictate everything from how asylum seekers should be processed, um, so the bare minimum requirements for uh, the rights that they have, um, the um, access to welfare, that sort of thing. Who qualifies as a refugee is also determined within those that set of legislation. And then the two that I think are the, that you mentioned, um, being Dublin and Eurodac, are two of the ones that are the most important to the UK at the moment. The Dublin regulation is um, or what has is also sometimes called the Dublin system, is a set of criteria to determine which member state is responsible for assessing an asylum application. 
And this criteria is determined based on in a higher there's a hierarchy of criteria that need to be um, determined. So the first one being is the person um, moving uh, for family reunification possibilities or can there they be reunified with family members? Um, do they already possess a visa or work permit for another member state? Um, or and how have they entered the EU? Is it irregularly or regularly? Irregularly meaning without a visa, regularly meaning through normal channels, usually with a visa. Um, if an asylum seeker doesn't match any of these criteria, then he or she is um, supposed to be sent back to the first EU country into which they, um, they entered. So this puts a lot of pressure on um, what are considered the, the frontline, quote, frontline member states, um, being really Italy and Greece. So this is why we hear a lot about Italy and Greece receiving a lot of asylum applications, because they are the ones that are supposed to um, process a lot of, of these applications. The other one is Eurodac. There's the fingerprint database that, um, that the EU has in order to kind of keep track of where asylum seekers have, have moved to. This is important, especially in the context of Dublin, because in order for a member state to know which countries the to which country the asylum seeker should be sent, if they have to be sent back to that first country that they entered, they have to know where they went. And tracking fingerprints with movement is one of the ways that that is achieved. It's also really important in terms of identification. A lot of asylum seekers don't have identification with them. And the usual procedure of asking then the country of origin to provide that identification, there are a lot of countries that don't do that. Or it's impossible to, especially if the country's um, experiencing conflict, especially a civil war, sometimes it's just impossible to get that sort of identification documentation. So fingerprints are the way that the EU has chosen to go about tracking that information. So then to go back to your original question about what, how Brexit is going to affect all of this, the current idea... And again, everything's always in flux. So exactly, the yeah. British government could come out tomorrow and say that they're actually going to keep everything. We'll see what happens. But it appears that the British government is, is interested in completely getting rid of the common European asylum system, stepping back from the Dublin regulation. This was came about in the, the 2018 white paper that was published. They mentioned that they were interested in doing this, which would mean then no longer having access to the fingerprint information in Eurodac and no longer having the ability to, to redistribute asylum seekers depending on the Dublin criteria. The UK is very interested in, in uh, renegotiating this, especially Dublin. They, the government likes the idea behind Dublin, but doesn't want to keep Dublin as it is. So again, we'll have to see what happens. The only thing we know for sure is that they won't have access to Eurodac anymore unless it's renegotiated, and they won't have access to Dublin anymore unless it's re unless it's renegotiated. Would there be a process to replace the two systems that are currently under negotiation? The thing about Dublin is it is this this um, this transfer system is the main thing that they wouldn't have access to anymore. So in Dublin, if if an asylum seeker came to the UK and there's evidence that that person had come through, say, Germany, then the UK can lodge a transfer application to Germany and say, hey, we have some evidence that this person traveled through Germany to get to the UK. They don't fit these higher order criteria. Therefore, 
we would like to send them back to Germany and have Germany process the application. Germany would then say, okay, and then the person would be transferred. So that's the main thing that would be missing. There are some other aspects of it that are extremely important. The UK then would no longer have access to this, these transfers. Again, this is something that can be renegotiated. And the white paper, the, in the 2018 white paper, that the government did say that they were interested in doing that either at an EU level or between member states. So even that'll be really important to see how that comes about, because especially if it's between member states, it could be that there's differentiation in the agreements between member states. So only if it's bilateral agreements. So again, we'll have to see exactly which direction that ends up taking. There's some other aspects to Dublin that are really important in that sense, especially when it comes to um, the rights of minors and um, this this idea of family reunification. The, the UK does have family reunification legislation, but Dublin is a lot stronger. Um, it provides time limit to the application period for um, for dealing with minors, which is really important because sometimes these asylum applications can take years. So it's really important that we don't allow minors to be stuck in limbo for an extended period of time. Um, it also makes family reunification for minors a lot easier because they're allowed to be transferred to people who are not their immediate parents. So this can be older siblings, this can be aunts, uncles. That's important given that there are, there's a, we're, we're, we're worried about the safety of these children and we want to make sure that they are in an environment that's supportive and that they have the, that they're around family members. And if we're only defining family as immediate blood parents, then what if something terrible had happened and that's, that's not an option? Or what if um, that's not the person who was raising the child? So there's just a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration that Dublin does, but unfortunately the UK legislation does not. Um, Could they then make, hypothetically, right, if they ended up not being able to renegotiate um, into the regulation that the EU um, sets out, would they then be able to like make their own legislation on that and it basically be similar or like mimicking um, what they're not able to renegotiate in? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I'm, the UK can negotiate whatever they like. Um, it's whether or not the other, the state that they're negotiating with is willing to take that. So it could end up being that um, these standards are maintained and that ends up what is negotiated it, or the UK decides that we'll just keep Dublin 3. So there are options, especially options to, to keep things the way that they are. But it starts getting trickier when you look at especially family reunion. Maybe to help us a little bit more, how does the history of these two processes affect the future negotiations for resettlement plans? I'm going to back up slightly. Go for it. <laughs> the, the UK historically has been a net sender of, of Dublin transfers. So this means that the, the UK trans, transfers more asylum seekers to other EU member states than it receives. This changed in 2016, where there were more that were coming in, but still we're talking very few. Net, we're talking, I think in a four-year period, it was less than 1,000. But the vast majority of those were family reunion requests. So one of the ways that the, um, the government may decide that it wants to try and control this is by getting rid of that 
element or at least putting more controls on family reunion because they know that that's, a, that's a, an avenue through which people are coming. So if they can control that more, then they can stop people coming in. Because when it comes down to it, the, the, the government's main message, especially with Brexit, was controlling immigration, stopping immigration. And unfortunately, even though we, we defined very clearly the difference, the massive difference between immigration and asylum at the beginning, a lot of, a lot of legislation sometimes overlaps and forgets that there needs to be a difference between these two policy areas. So it's possible that the government could try and govern asylum policy as if it were immigration, which it absolutely shouldn't be. And we could see that with family reunification. Again, we're looking into the future, so we can't mm. guarantee anything. Exactly. But it's possible that they might continue to try and govern asylum policy in this way and seeing that this is the avenue through which people are entering the country, then trying to add more restrictions to it in order to deter people from trying to enter via that avenue, which is just dangerous, really. Interesting. So the Johnson government has been pushing out the message of tighter border restrictions. Why do you think that is? Immigration has always been a very touchy issue, and this is not with only the UK. This is all over the world. A lot of it has to do with identity. And um, especially with the rise of populism, one of the main issues that comes up in populist, um, populist rhetoric is immigration and especially anti-immigration and xenophobia. So I think it's, it's a combination of this rhetoric and the platforms that politicians have been running on, especially in the previous um, election in the UK. But it's... It, it's a broader phenomenon that gets to really to the heart of identity construction um, that and, and ideas of nationality and national identity that I think is really what's driving this, this anti-immigrant rhetoric. So within the UK, is there much polarisation on this topic of um, restricting the borders further than they already are, as you explained before? I, th- I think Brexit, the Brexit vote might be a good indication of that. I haven't seen any recent public opinion polls um, specifically looking at that. So this is all this is analysis of other things to try and get at that point. I think it depends on where in the UK you're looking. So again, as we as we know from the, the outcome of the Brexit referendum, uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to stay in the EU while England and Wales voted to leave. Um, I think it that doesn't match on perfectly with pro-immigration versus anti-immigration, but especially when you look at Scotland, that starts to get towards it. And I think that really comes through in um, some of the, the changes to the, um, the immigration system that have been proposed. Because the tricky thing is, again, we need to separate refugees and, and immigrants. It's hard because when we talk about people coming in, that inherently lumps everyone into this category of migrant. But we can't govern all migrants the same, especially those who have been forced to leave, those who need international protection. They need to be governed in a very different way than, uh, say, um, than immigrants of, of other who, who have moved for other reasons, I should say, rather. What are the processes then that the UK is looking at to implement? So then if we get into this, this points-based system that has been that has been proposed. One of the things that the UK government has been saying that they really want an Australia-style points-based system. 
as we know, Australia has a points-based system. One of the things, and we can get into the points-based system a bit later, so I won't get too much into the details now, but one of the things that differs between how Australia governs immigration in that sense, especially with the points-based system, and how the UK wants to do it, is that Australia has a decentralized governance of immigration. Each state decides um, who they want to define as skilled. The UK will not be doing that. It'll be centralized. Scotland does not like this. They think that the Scottish economy needs things that may differ from what Westminster thinks. Um, there are certain industries that they would like to prop up more. And um, they actually tried to put that under their devolved powers. So as we know, the Scottish Parliament has autonomy in certain policy areas, they which is what devolution is. So what they wanted to do was take immigration in this points-based system and put it under their under their authority. Westminster said no. So I think if nothing else, we can use that as evidence of there being differences in what the UK broadly sees as as being whether or not it should be pro-immigration versus anti-immigration, which I think is a debate that we're going to see continue once the, the transition period has stopped and all of the whatever legislation has been decided on kicks in. Does populism in the UK interact with how they plan to regulate migrants or refugees or asylum seekers after they leave the EU? I think absolutely. And populism in the sense of this anti-immigration, xenophobic sort of rhetoric. Um, I mean, we saw that coming through in the the election. Um, And I think we're continuing to see policies that, that, especially in asylum, that promote more control and issues of state sovereignty and policy control much more so than human rights, unfortunately. Do you love Global Questions? We are a new up-and-coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. Where do you think that this populism came from? Why has there been such a support for this ideal? Well, there's all manner of theories mm. as to why this is the case yeah. now. Do um, you have one? <laughs> well, the, some of the prevailing theories and the ones that I have found most persuasive are it's a very much an environmental thing. So it's kind of like a confluence of a bunch of issues came together and has sparked this. It's always been around. I think that's something that needs to be understood about populism is this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that has been around for an extremely long time. I think that part of its rise could be due to the uh, global financial crisis and a lot of the uncertainty that has come along with that, especially economic uncertainty. The the Arab uprisings and the war in Syria, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, the forced migration flows that have come from that sparked a, quite a bit of xenophobia, especially because in Europe, this is a very different migration flow or a very different refugee flow than Europe has experienced in a very, very long time. Um, usually refugees and asylum seekers um, coming to seek asylum in, at least when we're talking about big flows, that since the Second World War, there's been flows from the Balkans, but otherwise there hasn't really been that much. Then suddenly there's a lot from a very different part of the world. And I think that has sparked some xenophobia. So if you add in xenophobia, 
concerns about economic security, decline in in global economies, not just the personal economic uncertainty, but also EU level, state level um, downturns in economies, decrease in job opportunities, especially in the Mediterranean states. You start seeing people being very con- they start losing faith in the government and especially in the EU. The EU tends to be used as a scapegoat. And um, people started losing faith in in the EU. So because the processes and the regulations weren't um, able to uphold the change in flow of um, like asylum seekers and refugees, or and if why? it was, it was in ways that people couldn't see personally. Right. That's the tricky thing about the EU is people can't really see personally what the effects are. Um, and a lot of times member states will actually take credit for things that the EU has done. Uh, Theresa May did this when the roaming charges were abolished across the EU, Theresa May said that her government had done that, which is not true. That was an EU-level EU level decision. Do you want to explain, uh, like, what are the uh, roaming charges? So, you know, when you travel abroad, you'll get a text on your phone that says, hey, welcome to Turkey or welcome to, welcome to Germany. And it'll say, you know, data will cost this much. Um, that used to be true across the, the EU as well, which when it's so easy to get from one member state to another was pretty frustrating. That has all been done away with. So now there are no longer roaming charges across the EU, um, which is fantastic because free communication is really important to freedom of movement, which is one of the core tenets of the EU. Mm. And Theresa May said that her government had ensured that, which is not true, that Mm. that was an EU level decision. But she's not alone. Member states across the EU do this. Mm. Why do they do it? Partly because it's easy. Um, it's easy to take credit for good things that happen. And because the EU is not directly present in the same way that a national government is. So when good things happen, they could say, oh, we did it. And the EU is not there to say, oh, that's not true. That's not how that works. We did that. But then if something bad happens, they can say, oh, that was the EU's fault. And the EU is not there to say, wait, hang on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That may not have been our fault or this didn't quite pan out the way that we wanted or for whatever reason that policies are are ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um. So the EU is a great and powerful institution, but one of its one of the issues that it's having that it's still trying to overcome is the distance that it has between it and its citizens. And member states sometimes exploit that. So do you think populism had a role in the Brexit decision? I think it's it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the the answer to everything. Because I've definitely the rise in populism, I, I would argue contributed. But the UK has always been in a very particular situation. It's been considered what um, scholars have called an awkward partner. Um, Philomena Murray has written extensively on this. It has had a lot of opt-outs of a lot of policy areas. And it's always had this weird relationship between wanting to maintain sovereignty, but then also there's some areas where they're willing to function on a supranational level, which is where the opt-outs really come in. So I think that the UK has always had one foot out the door anyway. So... May, populism, I, I would argue, or this rise in populism, this rise in the anti-immigration xenophobia, nationalism in particular, that's a very important part of populism is this intense feeling of nationalism, which then would lead to a desire to withhold sovereignty and to protect sovereignty. And I think that all of that definitely contributed, but I think the UK was already set up um, politically to, to be able to leave, much more so than, because we've seen other countries that have also experienced rises in populism, but they haven't left. So the question is, why not? Exactly, yeah. 
So in what ways were there, was their foot half out the door? It's, it's a lot of the opt-outs. So they're not in Schengen, in the Schengen zone, which is the free, free movement. They're, they don't use the euro, so they're outside of the eurozone. In terms of the common European asylum system, the UK signed on to the original um, common European asylum system. But then when the, everything was recast in 2013, they only signed on to Eurodac and Dublin Three. UK can't pick and choose everything, but it has quite a bit of power over what it can pick and choose in terms of which policies it chooses to uh, it chooses to participate in. Not anymore, of course. <laughs> yeah. I when I was researching this topic, this idea of a power move came up for the UK. How would the UK leaving the EU give them more power? I think it all comes down to how we understand power and how more specifically how the UK understands power. I think that the current administration believes that power is derived from sovereignty and sovereign decision-making um, and control, specifically control of immigration, control of borders. That's something that the UK has always been very uncomfortable with, is the, the freedom of movement of um, EU nationals, um, being able to live and work in, in the UK, and obviously vice versa, but the UK doesn't talk about that, or at least the government doesn't talk about that very often. Um, so I think if power is understood in that way, then you could be – I could see how the administration would think that it's increasing its power by increasing its sovereign decision-making powers. So the EU is no longer – or as far as it is concerned, the EU is no longer making decisions for it on a supranational level. Instead, it's making its own decisions. If the UK does end up negotiating a position similar to what Norway has in the European economic area, then they will no longer have a say in what the regulations are that are affecting it, but it will still be beholden to um, following through with the regulations and following those regulations. So that sovereignty that it thinks it has in terms of sovereign decision-making, it doesn't really have that. So the power that it thinks it has and the power that it actually has are two very different things. But at the same time, it does everything's going to be renegotiated, which it does have power in that. So we'll have to see which direction those negotiations take in order to really understand what the power dynamics are and whether or not the UK is in a better position than it was when it was a member of the EU. So why is there currently so much uncertainty around Brexit and its effects on refugees and asylum seekers? Now, I think the main thing about the problem with asylum is that it is it is something that will need to be renegotiated. So everything's yeah. kind of in flux at the moment. Mm. Um, and the government has also been very kind of all over the place about what it wants. It uses a lot of rhetoric to say that it, it cares a lot about the providing protection. And um, the UK has a history of providing protection, which is true, absolutely true, and that they want to maintain that just not in the um, the EU structures that exist. So the Common European Asylum System, Dublin. How that will be renegotiated, you don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. The other mm. tricky thing, actually, that would be interesting to add is Dublin 4 has been in negotiation in, um, in the EU for ages. And just recently, that was pretty much tabled. So we can assume that we're going to be operating under Dublin 3 for quite a while. So... What this means for the UK is that 
it, it, it creates a little bit of certainty for these negotiations because at least the UK knows what what the EU stance is rather than having things still under negotiation. But it'll be interesting to see also how that affects the EU and its recast of Dublin because there's consensus that Dublin hasn't done what it's supposed to do and needs to be rewritten. Same thing with a lot of the common European asylum system. I think that Brexit will actually affect that as well or could affect that. I think from the EU perspective, it's really important to think about what's going to be happening because there there are still a lot of asylum seekers that are coming into into Europe. There's been massive securitization of asylum policy, especially in the Mediterranean. In some countries, there's been a ramp up of deportations. There's it's it's been the UK had an interesting voice in in these sorts of things. Um, it helped write the Refugee Convention, signed on to the the 2018 uh, UN Global Compact for Refugees that kind of being evidence that the UK does care very deeply about refugee policy, but then at the same time has also been a vocal critic of some of the resettlement schemes that the that the EU has proposed. Especially there was a quota-based resettlement scheme that was proposed a couple of years ago uh, that ended up not going through. Once the UK leaves, that voice also leaves. So the question is, how is that going to change asylum governance in the EU, and is that going to amplify some other voices that may have been drowned out by the UK? So it'll be interesting to see how all of this even changes some of the recastings of the common European asylum system mechanisms. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to look at it. Um, So as you mentioned before, they want to introduce that new points-based system. What is that, and why do they want to be like Australia? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll answer that first part first. This new points-based system is basically awarding visas or saying that you can you qualify to apply for a visa based on a point system. So you get a certain number of points for certain criteria. Um, the criteria that the UK wants to use, if you have a job offer from a sponsor, if uh, the job that is offered to you is at an appropriate skill level, and if you speak English. Um, there's also a salary requirement, whether or not the job is on a, a shortage list. And um, there's also some education qualifications. In order to qualify for it, and then this is for a skilled working visa specifically. It's an important but specific type of visa. In order to qualify for this visa, you have to get 70 points. So if you have an offer of a job um, by an approved sponsor, the job is at an appropriate skill level and you speak English, you'll have 50 points right there. If you get a job, you probably will qualify for all of those things. So really the question comes down to those last three categories. And that's your salary, whether or not your job is on a a shortage list, and your education level. The salary has come under a lot of scrutiny and has been a major point of contention. It was originally set at 30,000 pounds per year, which was extremely high. Um, that has since been dropped down to 23,040 pounds. That's very specific. It is. So it actually, that is then split into two types of categories. So you can have a salary of 23,040 pounds to 25,599 pounds per year. That gives you 10 points. If you have anything above that, you get 20 points. Yeah, so they are looking for a specific pay grade, as it were. Exactly, yeah. Um, there is some wiggle room in it. But broadly speaking, this is this is kind of where where the qualifications are at, or what they're looking for. Um, the the there is also a list of 
shortage of occupations that are in shortage. If you have a uh, occupation on this list, then you get 20 points. And then finally, there's um, it's called the education qualification, but it's only for PhDs, interestingly. But I would only get 10 points because I am not, I don't have a STEM PhD. Oh, okay. So if you have a PhD, according to the government, if you have a PhD in a subject relevant to the job, then you get 10 points. If it is a PhD in a STEM subject relevant to the job, it's 20. So that means, okay. That really changes the way you view your own PhD, surely. It does. Interestingly, <laughs> though, Australia is similar. Oh, okay. STEM PhDs are, are considered more highly than social sciences, for example. So let's say hypothetically that I wanted to apply for one of these skilled jobs. Say I meet the first three criteria, so that gives me 50 points. Means I need at least another 20. My, I still don't have the PhD yet, but after I do, that would only give me 10 points because I'm a social science, not STEM. So that means I'm still 10 points short, which means that I have to have both the PhD and a job that, that pays me at least 23,040 pounds per year. Now, if I had a PhD in STEM, I would only need to have that STEM PhD. The pay wouldn't matter. So moving back kind of more broadly, what, what is the point of these points-based systems? They, they create a system in which there's a lot more control. Um, governments can fine-tune exactly who they want to target and industries that they want to target, which from a governance perspective seems really good. But the problem is it tends to, it, it tends to treat people like black boxes. There's not a lot of effort that's put into understanding the person that's applying and um, that's something that I think the Australian system does a little bit better than the UK system. We'll see whether or not that system is, is modified at all in the next 10 months um, or if that ends up being what, uh, what ends up being put on the table for, for all uh, skilled visas. What I think makes the future of immigration post-Brexit the most interesting is not just this points-based system but also the fact that now all EU nationals will be treated as third country nationals. Because the UK actually does have a points-based system already. So this isn't something completely new. Yeah, they're just tailoring it a bit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, What really makes it interesting is suddenly you have immigrants from 27 member states who before now have been able to move freely in and out of the UK, seek work in the UK, study in the UK. Now, in order to work... And to live, they will have to apply for this visa with actually quite strict restrictions on on who even has access to that visa application. Um, This is going to change a lot, especially the demographics of immigrants coming in. Because it's quite possible that a lot of the people coming in from continental Europe um, either don't match the criteria and then were still working in the UK before or aren't now with all of the barriers to entry that have been put up are just not interested um, and maybe more interested in come, going to a different country, especially if they're third country nationals. Who knows? They could come here. So so they're losing out on some skills. This points-based system doesn't mean that, and that people won't still be able to come because obviously people will still yeah. be able to come. The thing that we have to remember with immigration is that we're dealing with people, which seems... Like, I mean, it makes sense. We should know this. Yeah. Um, But it's something that I think governments forget because 
they think that, oh, well, we'll we'll put all of these qualifications that someone needs and then like they'll they'll want to come anyway because they wanted to come before they'll want to come anyway. But they forget that that person is making decisions based on, say, these barriers to entry or other opportunities that have arisen or or that sort of thing. There's a cost benefit analysis that goes on. Now, someone who may have come, even though they perfectly qualify for this, maybe they're just so put off by the entire Brexit situation that they have no interest in coming anymore. Um, so another one of the things actually has come up a lot in terms of this new points-based system is what's going to happen to the NHS. So you did mention that doctors, for example, nurses, um, researchers are going to be affected by this, and nurses in particular because there was a question of whether or not their salaries met the salary threshold. Right. That, I think, is where this this job shortage list comes into play because if they have an occupation on that list, they just need to meet those first three criteria and then whether or not it's on the list and the pay doesn't doesn't factor into their ability to apply. I think that there's still there are still avenues. The question is whether or not people will want to pursue those. Right. And that's something we're just going to have to wait and see whether or not this has put everyone off to, to immigrating exactly. to the UK. Lots of um, hoops to jump through. Exactly. While while under freedom of movement in the EU, it was incredibly easy. And and now suddenly there's a lot more paperwork involved. Mm. What do you think that governments should be conscious of when they're operating in the global context? Governments need to be holistic in the way that they approach these sort of governance issues. We spent most of our time talking about the UK and its approach to asylum policy and immigration. But we have to remember that the EU, it's 27 other sovereign member states that have their own interests, their own preferences, their own concerns that they're also going to be bringing to the table. That's one of the reasons why it's difficult for us to to say exactly what's going to happen and what these policies are going to look like because the negotiations are still ongoing. And we do have, there are a lot of actors at play with a lot of preferences that are sometimes coming directly into conflict with each other. But then we also have to Governments and us as researchers also have to think more broadly. Well, what are the global concerns? What are the global actors are at play? So what what role will the U.S. have in all of this? I mean, the U.S. is a major receiver of asylum seekers and refugees and has resettled an incredible number of refugees. So maybe there'll be something that'll come in an agreement between the U.S. and the U.K. I don't think that will happen, but we'll see. Same thing with Australia. The Commonwealth, what role will the Commonwealth play in all of this? And that's something that the UK has been thinking about. um, But so far, negotiations haven't gone very far. I think it is important for governments and, of course, as researchers to to keep in mind the the drivers and the preferences of all actors involved in these sorts of questions and also the immigrants and the refugees themselves, because these are people with agency and they are decision makers and we can't there's a tendency, especially in migration policy um, studies, to think about migrants as black boxes, that they don't have agency, they don't really make decisions, they just kind of, they, they follow the, the economic will of capitalism. If there's, a, if there's a job that's needed in one country, we'll go, we'll go follow that. We forget that maybe that person doesn't want to move to that country, maybe that person doesn't want to do that job. Maybe that person has some familial obligations that they have to take care of before they can do something. Maybe it they can't live permanently in this position. Maybe they have to move somewhere else. So I think it's important that governments remember that we're dealing with people here. 
with their own concerns and their own um, hopes and dreams. And if the UK can work that into its its approach to both asylum and immigration policies, then I think they'll they'll be a much brighter future. Mm. Yeah, sprinkle a little humanity into it. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was very interesting. I think I've seen a lot of talk around Brexit and refugees, but it's always been in like an academic article or very vaguely in the newspaper or like not really delving into it very intensely. So it's been a pleasure to actually pick your brain a bit and um, get some very good information out of you. So thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you about this. (laughs) It's all good. Thank you so much. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.